Emily Slays, why do we spend so much time in this country and in, on our network and in your life talking about presidents? Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to be with you and with Harold. We talk about presidents because people understand people better than ideas. And we, we eventually want to get to ideas, but we get at those ideas through people, our presidents. Dr. Holzer, is, I'm often want to call you, even though you're not a doctor. Thank you for that mixed introduction. And <laughs> thank you for having me on the show. And thank, welcome to Franklin Roosevelt's home, uh, from which we're broadcasting tonight. Why? I think Amity has it right. I also think that we were blessed to have a first president who was a national hero before he became president and was a touchstone and an icon and created a presidency that was centered on both personality and ideas, but in large measure personality. Everyone has, since has been measured against George Washington. And uh, we look for extraordinary guidance, leadership, and inspiration from these so far men. Talk about this house in a second, but I want to ask Amity, is there a house anywhere for Calvin Coolidge? There is a house for Calvin Coolidge in Plymouth Notch, Vermont. That's near Killington. It's near Woodstock, Vermont, if, if those are important points for you. Uh, and the interesting about, thing about Coolidge's house is he was sworn in to the presidency there by his father, by virtue of his father being a notary public. It, it couldn't be more American than that. When President Harding died, the president had to be sworn in, and they did it right there by the lamp with the family Bible. So it's a very compelling sight. Brian's been there. I think Harold's probably been there. We welcome all of you. The FDR house. This is one of, I assume, many places dedicated. What is this house? So we are in the carved out basement, not original to the house, of the townhouse that Franklin D. Roosevelt's mother built as a wedding present for Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, both families moved in in 1908. Uh, FDR occupied, and, and his wife Eleanor and their children occupied the east side of the house. FDR's mother stayed in the west side of the house and immediately opened the walls so that, as Eleanor said, my mother-in-law was on our side of the house for the next 25 years, <laughs> sometimes at the least expected moments. Um, we'll leave that to the imagination. But this was FDR's uh, political base. It was also the home at which he recovered from polio in 1921. Uh, FDR's mother wanted him to go to Hyde Park and sort of retire in luxury or you know, rustic luxury. Eleanor insisted that he stay here because here he could get his bearings back into society and government politics. The house was had an had two elevators, which made FDR immediately mobile once he got into a wheelchair. Uh, here he ran his campaigns for governor of New York, and here he conducted his campaign for the presidency in 1932. It was his base. And this house, I guess most famously, in terms of historical importance, was the transition headquarters between November 1932 and 
March 1933, the four months interregnum then that separated elections and inaugurations. And upstairs, a few floors, FDR's, in FDR's modest library, the parameters of the New Deal were forged, argued, and created, including, as I love to tell our audiences here, Social Security created in this very house. For if, which, thank you. Thank you all. If, um, are you on Social Security? Barely, but yes. Okay. Uh, I would not ask Amity that same question. Uh, if Calvin Coolidge was a, here and you could talk with him, based on the book that you wrote and the way you look at the world, what would you want to talk to him about? Well, he would want to talk to us about the national debt. And what he would say is, uh, it may not seem as though it matters, no, but it might one day. And what, what do you, plural, plan to do about that? Because Coolidge did manage to, his great feat, um, was not a war. It was not a war victory, but it was a fiscal victory. He actually managed to cut the debt by one-third, and what's more, he managed to cut the government, Brian, so that after his 67 months in the presidency, the budget was actually lower than when he came in. And the audience always says, is that real amity? Is that inflation? Is it, or is, did he restrict the growth of the budget? He actually cut the budget so that the number was lower, notwithstanding a population growth very healthy and economic growth of 4%. It's quite a feat to, to do that. Um, and at times, it may seem it doesn't matter, but it can matter very much, particularly when our currency, for example, is challenged. And we have a scholarship we give for, to honor Calvin Coolidge. And this year, we had 3,400 candidates. And each of them wrote an essay about what Calvin Coolidge would do about the debt. So we, the, the point being to acquaint young people with thought about the debt and the, the knowledge that perhaps they may shoulder some of the burden of the debt. You have spent uh, most of your life thinking and talking and writing about Abraham Lincoln. If he were around, what would you want to talk to him about? Well, first of all, I would forgive him the national debt that he racked up because he thought of the first federal income tax, um, excluding state and local deductibility, I might add. Well, I think, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reverse the question and take Amity's approach. What would he want to talk about if he spent uh, a couple of days looking at the headlines and... Uh, going online, um, assuming he got, got into that rather quickly. I think he'd wonder why we haven't settled some of the intractable divisiveness that he encountered and, and was forced to confront. Um, he would wonder why, when he believed he set the country on a path to racial reconciliation, how that uh, transformed intersectional reconciliation as the priority what went wrong there in terms of speeding equal opportunity, which was one of the promises of the, certainly the latter part of the Civil War. I would ask him, uh, the questions I've been storing up are, you know, what's with you and your father? But that's just me <laughs> trying to figure out what that relationship was all about. Why did you, why did you uh, build a, uh, pay for a gravestone for your, um, your valet, but didn't listen to your stepmother's plea that you pay for a gravestone for your dad. 
uh, there are some deep-seated problems there that have never been explained. And uh, I guess I would ask, so what's with you and emancipation? Did you always plan somehow to be the liberation president? Wasn't it always in the back of your mind as someone who said, I've always been anti-slavery, I'm naturally anti-slavery? What was the real end game here? And um, did the ends justify the means, I guess? Let me go back to what I asked you about the FDR house. How hard is it, and i ask both of you, how hard is it to maintain these institutions today? Well, we're very lucky at Roosevelt House. When, when Franklin Roosevelt's mother died, he, I think, could not bring himself to return to this house. They were very, very close. And FDR put the house up for sale. Eleanor had become very close to the students at Hunter College. This house is a part of Hunter College, which is a part of the city university system in New York. She hung out in the Hunter Library. She brought Hunter girls here for, her, for lunch. She only could make grilled cheese, but she made grilled cheese. Um, so FDR put this house up for the staggering cost of $60,000. Um, Eleanor prevailed upon Hunter College to make a bid for the house. FDR lowered the price to $50,000 for a double townhouse on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And it opened as a multi-faith, interreligious, multiracial place for the female students of Hunter to study, to socialize, to join clubs. And it was that for many years until the house began to run down inevitably because it wasn't well maintained. And then under our Hunter College president, Jennifer Rabb, money was raised to rehabilitate the house. And now it functions as a public policy center for undergraduates and a center for policy discussion like we're attempting to have tonight. Attempting? <laughs> Your question is? Uh, how about raising money uh, in the name of Calvin Coolidge, and how do you maintain Plymouth Notch? Well, but that's very difficult because President Coolidge was ambivalent about taking government money, especially federal money. And you can read it right in his autobiography. So the question is, did he cut off his nose to spite his historical face, right? He didn't like that idea when um, his nice friends got together. This was before the law that pays for the presidential libraries to be maintained. His nice friends got together, um, Clarence Barron of Barron's, the magazine, and so on, and got some money together. Coolidge didn't know quite what to do with it. He was very grateful to his beautiful wife, Grace, for tolerating the presidency. And she was a professional lady. She was an instructor of the deaf and had trained at the Clark School in Northampton, Massachusetts. And Coolidge thought about it, and he thought it might be vanity to have a presidential library with this money. And so he gave the money from his friends to the Clark School for the deaf so that his wife might have what she dreamed of. And also, he thought he might go. He had a weak heart. And he wanted her to be professionally recognized and, of course, the most important lady in the town, which she was. 
through the rest of her life, and that benefited many, many uh, generations of, of pupils and teachers at the school. However, what did it leave? It left Plymouth, his birthplace in Vermont, a little challenged. We have the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation there. We don't take, in, in my time there, I'm the chairman, we haven't um, emphasized federal money. We try to raise our own money ourselves to honor the president's philosophy. And in addition, we now have Coolidge House in Washington. Place is expensive, but place is worth it because people come and they can think differently about their subject, about a president, if they know something about him. So for Coolidge House in Washington, which will, is by Georgetown, we're currently having a graphic novelist draw Coolidge's life so that all the children and adults who come to Coolidge House can walk away with Coolidge's life in mind and some knowledge of it. In Vermont, the state, our wonderful partner, that of the Coolidge Foundation, maintains the show, all the objects, and does own many of them. And this summer, there is a show about Calvin Coolidge and Grace Coolidge's pets. <laughs> Numerous. Uh, um, there's an apocryphal statement, but I'll still attribute it to him that he said, you know, you really shouldn't be president if you don't understand about pets. Pets are very important, including Rebecca the raccoon, who is featured in this show. I, I want to divert just a, 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 for a moment because I've had the pleasure of interviewing uh, both of these people on many occasions. But uh, Amity um, might remember an event we had some time ago when I, you came in, and I want you to complete the story. This is a very painful thing for me to bring up, but I have to get it on the record. She came in to do the interview in a nice-looking red dress, and she said to me, this is going to be a very important interview because my grandmother watches this program. Then what happened, Amity? Oh, then the tape did not tape. <laughs> And Brian put it in the can, but it was blank. And Brian and the poor young man, who was a new hire, I believe. He's still here. He's still here. <laughs> a tribute to Mr. Lamb, uh, who, who saw who passed over that, were very upset. And I had to come back another day and tape the whole story again. It was the tax book. It was a book about the tax code, too. So exciting. <laughs> in, in, uh, in, in 30 years, it's the only time it's ever happened. But it's very painful to remember it. But I wanted you to put it on the record. Now, was, um, and she did come back. I mean, she had to come all the way back from New York down to Washington. Now, um, Mr. Holzer. I know that there have been some questions that I've asked you over the years that you blanch at. People don't see it off camera. Mm. And I, can, I remember the one in particular where I asked you, you were in, we were in Fort Wayne, and I asked you, do you know where Fort Wayne, Indiana is? And you were unable to describe it. Uh, I, I just want to give you the same opportunity um, to take a shot, if you do, of something I've ever asked you in the past. You didn't say, you, you actually said, we're here in Fort Wayne, Harold Holzer, where is Fort Wayne in Indiana? And I said, oh. <laughs> and you said, spoken like a true New Yorker. <laughs> painful, painful. What have you said that has pained me or well, made me blanch, whatever that is? You don't have to, you don't have that to is? go beyond that. That's a, a <laughs> you, you, the first time we were on air, 26 years ago, for some 
perverse reason, you ask me if my mother worked. And I said, no, she's a housewife. I know, it's a terrible thing to say. I was nervous. I'd never been on C-SPAN before. And she was really upset with me. And she lived till she was almost 100 and never let me forget that I said that. I blame you. But she liked you. She didn't like me that much, but she liked you. That's the, ooh, that's the first time I've ever heard that story. Could, could, can I tell one other story? If you insist. Brian and I like to have dinner in Washington, and Brian is one of the most recognized people in Washington, D.C. The problem is most of the people who recognize him think he's John Glenn or John McCain. <laughs> I guess I've been with him when people come up and say, what you did for the space program is... <laughs> The best, the best of these happened at the Mayflower Hotel after a dinner. Someone came up to Brian and rushed out of the restaurant to the lobby and said, oh, Mr. Lamb. So this is good. She knows it's Brian. So far. Mr. Lamb, I, I always wanted to meet you. I have to tell you, I can never go to sleep until I watch you on TV. <laughs> To tell you how bad it is, I, since I've been in New York, I was walking down the street uh, yesterday, and a couple walked by me, and as they walked by me, they, the woman said, I, that, that is John McCain, I think. <laughs> back, back, to the to, back to president. If you had, I really want to ask you this question. If you had to pick between FDR and Lincoln, oh. what would you do? Um, You're who's, working. Who's writing the, the check? <laughs> <laughs> they obviously belong in the top three. Roosevelt dealt with two emergencies, which in 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 a state of diminished health, which I find extraordinary. Lincoln destroyed his own health working for four years on the existential crisis that challenged the country and determined whether it would survive. So I would like, I would like to get them both in a room and talk to them both, but I, I don't choose. I'm privileged to have created an association with Lincoln and to have had this thrust on me unexpectedly four years ago and get to work in this inspiring place. In, in this book that we're fortunate enough to be able to publish, there are 44 historians, and um, that's the important work in the book, published by Public Affairs and uh, Peter Osnos and company who have done all of our books over the years. Um, I want to get back. We do have a survey in there, and we don't need to go through the details now, but 27 is Calvin Coolidge. Why do you think he's based, uh, why, he, why he is at 27 instead of either... Lincoln at one or FDR at three? Well, thank you for asking that. Of course, I think Coolidge should be in the top five. <laughs> and I would defend that. Uh, presidential rankings, bit like any game, up, down. It's zero sum. If someone goes up, someone must go down. And uh, I would say I think um, economics features here. And if you think Franklin Roosevelt was a wonderful economist, you think Calvin Coolidge was a poor economist. It's sort, of, it's sort of like that. In a way, it's impossible to, I do, but for most people, I would say it's impossible to like both President Roosevelt, be a Roosevelt person, either a TR person or an FDR person, and be a Coolidge person. 
so it, it's binary like that, and it oughtn't be. Every president has his charms. So, what, but what's behind that? There was an economist at Wake Forest named Waples, Waples, W-H-A-P-L-E-S, who had a look at what historians thought about presidents, economic historians, and also what economists thought about presidents. And one of the things, he also looked at what they thought about economic events. And about half the economists thought Roosevelt made things better in the Great Depression of the 1930s, and about half thought he made things worse. The New Deal made things worse. If you surveyed historians, people with a PhD in history, more or less most of them would say Roosevelt made it better. So you have um, a culture in history which tends to the progressive, and the historians have the pens. So, so that's just the way it goes. You'll notice Grover Cleveland didn't do so well and is doing worse, and that's because history is moving leftward um, in our adulthood. So I, I think that's why Coolidge doesn't do so well. His econ is not known or understood. Um, it doesn't fit in the modern framework, even which professional economists have. He's really a pre-war economist, but he is a good economist, and his prosperity was genuine. Could I, could I just comment? No. <laughs> I'm not going to challenge you. I'm just going to say that the one added element that distinguishes Lincoln, Roosevelt, and others in the, in the top group, as ranked by the historians, is communications ability. And I think the magic of Roosevelt, if you go past the economics, is the extraordinary ability to connect with people, to reassure people in the depths of the Depression that government was working or trying. And even if the uh, Depression didn't technically end until World War II production boomed, those radio addresses, the first of which he gave in this very house the day after the 1932 election, I think fortified people. And Lincoln's extraordinary public letters uh, which he wrote to individuals but made sure were published in newspapers, um, gave people a sense of where he was thinking in, a, in an age in which presidents did not make speeches or tweet or do any of those things. Communications is key. I, My guess I, uh, is that Amity uh, Slays will tell you that Calvin Coolidge started on radio and was very successful, but I'll let her tell you. Can I, can I <laughs> say that? It's in the book. That's it's why in, I but it You know what? Um, I wasn't answering the question. I, I don't rank communicator up there in my, in my tent, but Coolidge was a very good communicator. Um, how do we know that? Uh, in 1920, as you know, President Harding passed away, so the vice president, which was Calvin Coolidge, became president. But he had an election in 1924. He had to run himself. And in that election that year, the, the progressives were doing very well. So there was a third party, La Follette, which sort of Ross Perot-wise um, was dividing things. And normally when that happens, in our experience, the Democrats win, right? Um, Coolidge took in that election, because he was so popular, an absolute majority, not a plurality, which meant, that is, he beat the Democrat and a very healthy progressive party at 16 or 17 percent combined. He was massively popular. The Republican Party had a heart attack when it realized he would not run in 28. He could have. And he was on the radio. What are missing, and they met 
may yet be found, because so much is found nowadays, are recordings of Coolidge on the radio. Uh, we don't seem to have those. We have the recordings of FDR, um, and that became national memory. That's not to say Coolidge was a lovey-dovey person when he entered the room. He was famously spare and restrained. But he was a recognizable type, especially to Midwesterners, actually, uh, a farmer type, which is to say um, dry humor didn't say a lot, but much appreciated. So I, I wouldn't say he was a poor communicator. He was a different kind mm -hmm. of communicator. And I'm looking for those radio tapes. There's only one or two I know um, in existence. One where he praises Charles Lindbergh for uh, when Lindbergh returned. Coolidge loved aviation, particularly uh, civil, because he thought that uh, it was a way to preclude war, to build up, build the world together through airplanes. Um, and the other is a brilliant tax speech which he made subsequent, very close to the death of his son. I want to dip into the book and quote Gordon Wood, who is a well-known historian, Brown University. And um, there's a lot of nuggets like this in, in this book, uh, thanks to the fabulous historians. He, he said this, and I want both of you to deal with this. John Adams was a realist. He did not believe all men were created equal. Didn't believe in American exceptionalism. He believed in English exceptionalism. That was one of his problems. I, 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 I don't know. I think he believed in a certain uh, class system out of New England, but I think he bought into the founding principles. So with all due respect to Gordon Wood, I think it may be a little bit of an oversimplification. A little, a little strong. I'm also a fan of John Quincy Adams, and I'm wondering how he does here. Um, that's I'll just say that, Brian. <laughs> a quote from Bob Mary, who wrote a book on McKinley. Uh, he was maybe one of the finest human beings who's ever made it to the White House. I'm very persuaded by a recent interview you did, Brian, with Richard Norton Smith, in which he, who is featured in the book, of course, in which he made a very good case that McKinley deserves higher recognition. Um, as a, he was very popular, uh, maybe he was the, the war he led was a little bit contrived, but um, you know he he was humane. He was lovely toward his wife, who was ill, uh, which counts for something. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds right. Mary's book, Bob Mary's book, is an excellent book. I recommend it. And what he says, the question, one of the big questions is the tariff. The Republicans are the tariff party. The Democrats are the income tax party, even before the income tax. And what he says is that, that Mary, Mary says that McKinley realized the uses of the tariff, but also the limits and damage of it, that he modernized as a man and a president before he was in office and in office. He was the first modern president. So that, that's, it's a beautiful portrait, the Mary book. In the John Siegenthaler profile of James K. Polk, oh. a one-termer uh, who died three months after his presidency, uh, he quotes uh, in the, from the diary, in an extensive diary, he says, this is what James K. Polk said, I know I'm the hardest working man in America, 
And uh, if I didn't have a cabinet, I can run the government without them. So I take... Uh, Does that give you a lead there? For... No, I'm going to do what I want to do about Polk, which is that um, <laughs> Abraham Lincoln loathed James Knox Polk. He thought he was an adventurer, uh, a warmonger, that he, uh, that he lied about the causes of the Mexican-American War uh, and that he... Uh, uh, took too much power upon himself in a non-crisis moment. So I think, where is Polk rated in the book? I don't know, but probably below the fold, right? I'll get that. Okay. Go ahead. Well, well there, there's something about that statement that gets at the presidency. Does the, does the president run everything, or does he preside? And I think some of you may remember this Saturday Night Live parody of President Carter being called up by a lady from the post office, I think, somewhere saying... President Carter, that is, what is a control freak president? President Carter, my franking machine model so-and-so here in my town and your post office works not. And President Carter says, oh, I was just speaking uh, to my cabinet this morning about the qualities of your franking machine. And if you re-push, if you push this button and reset, then your franking machine will work. Great, Mrs. Jones in the post office in Kansas or somewhere. And that, you know, how much does the president run everything is always the question. What um, I like about Coolidge, I will say, is he delegated ferociously. He, he really didn't like the tax policy that Andrew Mellon planned particularly because he thought it might raise too much money and then Congress would have money and the government would grow. But Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary, told him that it was a good tax policy for economic growth. So he said, okay. And that model is very rare nowadays. It's even rare in the Republican Party. The, the refraining president, um, yeah. kind of interesting. You know, in the Lincoln era, as, as uh, strongly as he led the government, as identified as he became as the, the spokesperson for the effort to quell the rebellion and reunite the country. The cabinet was sort of almost like the Israeli cabinet is now. If Lincoln had a policy decision he wanted to make, like the Emancipation Proclamation, he would submit it to the cabinet. In the case of the first Emancipation Proclamation, the cabinet, except for one member, said this is not the right move in July of 1862, and Lincoln acquiesced and tabled it. He soon, well not soon, but in the next year got past submitting questions because he had fewer cabinet meetings. But cabinets and delegation were, were serious businesses until modern presidency, the very modern presidency. The, in our book that called The Presidents, uh, um, David Stewart has a chapter on Andrew Johnson, but I want to go to another book that he wrote. I wanted to use these statistics for a while because I think they're fascinating. Uh, called The Summer of 1787, which is a book, obviously, about the Constitutional Convention. And he's got a tremendous number of numbers in there that uh, may or may not interest you to define our country. Um, and to start with, and I'm sure both of you know this, but that 74 men were appointed to participate in the Constitutional Convention. 55 showed up at any given time. 30 stayed the four months. 39 signed, three didn't, who were there. Uh, Rhode Island didn't uh, participate. What does that say? 
if anything, about how we started when you look at those numbers? And what would happen today, do you think, if the same kind of a call went out and people were asked to participate? I mean, it was tough to get around in those days. I think that those numbers are pretty, pretty good, I, considering the transportation difficulties and the, uh, the uh, unpleasantness of hanging out in Philadelphia in the summer and all of that thing. I think, again, it, it's like uh, the, the caution in the book about judging, and, and indeed when we do the surveys, about judging uh, presidents by by the standards of their own time, by 1787 to 89 standards, getting that kind of a super quorum together is pretty impressive, I think. Well, considering the absence of air conditioning, Claritin, antibiotics, statins, um, and they kept the windows closed, and they, they kept, kept the, the windows, and they they were pretty good. And nowadays, everyone would be there every day, and he Absolutely. would be or she would be on her phone. So she would not really be there, would she? Or, so it's a different kind of presence that we have now. Um, he's getting there, uh, trouble paying attention, really being there when we're yeah. being there. Mindfulness. More statistics uh, from David Stewart's book. Uh, <laughs> 29 of, of these people wore uniforms in the Revolutionary War. 35 were lawyers. 13 involved in trade business, 12 owned uh, managed plantations with slaves, and 24 owned considerable amounts of debt. How does that reflect what you think we are today? Modern America in 1787. I mean, the numbers are sound right. I'm, I didn't know about the debt, the people with debt. That's interesting. We're starting off owing money, which the country did. Question over here, yes. Yes, sir. Seems like we almost deify our early presidents. You said that Washington and Lincoln always come up number one and number two. When I went to elementary school in Brooklyn, when I walked in, there was Washington and there was Lincoln. Do you think that will continue? I know Washington is sometimes criticized today as a slaveholder. And sometimes they bring up quotes that Lincoln made during the Stephen Douglas, Lincoln Douglas debates which really jar modern ears mm-hmm. when you talk about race relations. Do you think they'll continue to be uh, held in high esteem? As long as I'm a voter, I, I'll try. But <laughs> I, think, I think the pressure is clearly on the founding generation, the Southern presidents. Washington, I think, is always going to be sui generis and uh, uh, considered a part because he created the presidency because he gave it up after two terms and refused to become a quasi-king in America and set the precedent that there would be peaceful transition. But for sure, Jefferson is sinking, Madison is sinking, the slaveholders who seemed unconscionable or hypocritical are suffering, as they should. Jackson, uh, Jackson's racism toward people of color and native peoples is coming under new scrutiny, and that's healthy. Lincoln said things, as you point out, in the debates. Uh, he said things in his presidency uh, when he was trying to get be, to assure himself that white public opinion would accept the Emancipation Proclamation. He renewed his earlier calls for, col- for voluntary colonization to Africa and the Caribbean. Again, it's the context, it's the context of the times. One, his, in Lincoln's last speech, he says... 
I think the time has come to extend the right to vote to the colored man, especially the very intelligent and those who have fought in the army. So if you look at it by 2019 standards, it sounds like means testing. But if you look at it by 1865 standards, Lincoln is making a statement that was so shocking to one member of the audience, John Wilkes Booth, that he vowed on the spot to kill him rather than accept racial equality. You have a question? I do. I love you and Susan. I've been watching C-SPAN for about 35 years. I love all the programming. And I can't help but ask a question. If you were to continue to update the book as we go further in history, where would President Trump fit in with these 10 leadership qualities? Oh, we can't answer that. And where would he fit in? in the top five, the bottom five, where would you fit in in the rankings? First of all, you have to let him finish, right? Uh, Presidents are not judged in midstream in the historian survey, so he's ineligible and we're unprepared to answer. Time will tell. The categories are fixed. Communication, I mean, I would rate him as one of the greatest communicators in the presidency. Whatever the policies are, he's mastered high technology. He knows how to do scrums with reporters. So there's, you know, that's going to be an example of a ratings um, factor. So you never know. Let, let me ask, uh, Amity, uh, is this the most divided this country's ever been? No. No, the Civil War is the most divided this, as Harold knows, the company, country's ever been. It's, it's um, I think, in our adulthood, uh, in my adulthood, it's the most divided school has ever been. That is, the, the, uh, what happens to kids in school and what they learn in school, they, they very much disagree. I think um, maybe in the 60s there were divisions about civil rights in school, or there were divisions in the past about saluting the flag in school, but now there are divisions about politics in school that are unusual for my adulthood, and I think yours. Next question. Gentleman in the back. Amity, I'd like to know how you came to Calvin Coolidge in terms of a topic for your book and head of the foundation. Uh, Thank you for that question. I wrote a history of the 1930s, the New Deal and the Great Depression, called Forgotten Man. And the analysis, uh, the results of my analysis were that something broke in the 1930s. Something good was broken and it didn't really get fixed. And what was it that was good that broke? That was the 1920s. So I worked backwards. The Coolidge book is really the prequel to Forgotten Men. He's the forgotten president or so, you know, like that. And the, the policies of Coolidge were very valuable. That is, government smaller, low tax. Coolidge cut the marginal tax rate to 25% from a very high figure. We haven't done that since. President Reagan very much admired President Coolidge. But it was particularly Coolidge's model of a restrained presidency, a non-egotistical presidency, that drew me as well. Finally, I will say, um, because some of this is personal, if you devote several years to writing about someone, you have to have a reason. And I had a boss named Robert Leroy Bartley at the Wall Street Journal 
whom Coolidge resembled, I'll put it that way. So, so Coolidge is the pre-incarnation of this taciturn yet lovely and very forceful and thoughtful editor, Bob Bartley. I knew Coolidge before I knew him through someone actually much younger than Coolidge. And I would guess that's also the Midwestern agricultural type. Coolidge was from Vermont, but Vermont moved to the Midwest, which is to say uh, the man of few words and many thoughts. Question. Yes, sir. Gentleman over here. Thank you, Thank you very much for this presentation. Uh, I wonder whether legacy could be one of the ten criteria, the overall impact of the individual on the future. And I, I think about, I'll just mention one president, Wilson by name, who notwithstanding lofty rhetoric and initial legislative success, left a legacy of racism, a sign of the times, but nonetheless racism, uh, an inability to get the League of Nations passed, um, the disaster of Versailles, and of course the, his, the precedent of his incapacity. So it, legacy and in connection with it. Well, I think the legacy question is dealt with in the various categories because the, the implicit judgment is made based on legacy because we're not there. But I think you, you found a perfect moment to talk about Wilson, so as long as you brought him up. The, the man who lived in this house uh, left here, Franklin Roosevelt, to work for Woodrow Wilson uh, as assistant secretary of the Navy and rented the house out for the duration of, uh, of, of, of uh, his service in Washington. Eleanor became a Red Cross nurse. FDR deeply admired Wilson and deeply admired Theodore Roosevelt as opposite as they were in approach to the presidency, in ability to communicate and persuade, uh, Roosevelt did find um, uh, great things about Wilson. He found him deeply inspiring. I absolutely agree with you about the racism. Um, I've been investigating Wilson and his relations with the press, and um, the, the, the racism is deeply troubling, and it was deeply ingrained. He was a Southern man. He remembered when uh, he remembered hearing his parents talking about Lincoln's election and the fact that they would have to leave the Union to protect slavery. So it was deeply ingrained. He was the last Civil War president, the last Civil War southerner to, to occupy the White House, as long as you brought him up. Amity, legacy? Well, legacy, I think Harold is saying it, legacy shifts. It, it, someone may be enormously popular when he leaves office, as Coolidge was, and um, appear to have great legacy. Ten years later, we say, who was that? Who was Eisenhower? Until we got a few good biographies of Eisenhower. I want to men mention uh, Evan Thomas's book, too. Uh, so... Le I think, le I agree, legacy is implicit in the other ratings. Question. Yeah. Yes. Um, another unexpected president that I don't think you've mentioned, Harry Truman. You want to start, Amity? Currently, I'm writing a book about great society, and it has an unexpected hero. Flawed hero, but much loved, and that is Walter Ruther. 
of the United Auto Workers. Not much known. Um, we used to hear about him every night in the news, every single night. Uh, um, the, the, uh, and what I look at in, the, in great society is what about the labor movement, what happened to organized labor, which was 25% of our workforce. So uh, I'm interested in Truman myself because he objected to an important law relating to labor, the Taft-Hartley Act, which weakened the Wagner Act of FDR. And I, I don't side with him. I actually did like Taft-Hartley, so to speak, before I was born. But I saw how he agonized over it, and I have great respect for the pro-labor view, too, for the union view, as part of the United States history, as part of who we are, and, and so on. So I like Truman better than I should for who he was, for his um, earnest, serious, uh, uncynical attitude towards the presidency. Um, I think Michael Beschloss has written uh, astonishingly about Truman. How did this um, anti-Semitic guy pull the lever on establishing statehood for Israel? It was a remarkable journey. I will turn one part of the Truman story on its ear. Um, Abraham Lincoln's greatest mistake was probably either tolerating or encouraging the nomination of Andrew Johnson as his second vice president. He wasn't well. He should have thought a little more closely about the issue of succession and about legacy. Um, he chose the only southern, southern senator who had not defected to the Confederacy, even though he was a Democrat, not a Republican. Even though he was deeply racist, I don't think he basically spent any time talking to him. Magically, Franklin Roosevelt chose Harry Truman. Um, and we know his hand was on that because he made the selection. I don't know why he saw possibility in Truman. He certainly knew of his own frailty, and he, I'm sure, knew. He didn't expect to live through his third term. Uh, he didn't expect, certainly, to survive his, his fourth and thought maybe he would resign in the middle of the presidency. If the war ended, he wanted to, to see, see Allied victory through. So it's just a remarkable thing that he found this, this amazing man who seemed greater than the sum of his parts. We have about eight minutes left. A couple questions in the back. Yes, sir. I wonder if you could comment on Robin Caro's suggestion that those who exercise power take great attention to mask it uh, insofar as that masking or that subterfuge impacts upon the ratings that you've given. I'm thinking particularly of Dwight Eisenhower, who particularly at one time was viewed not to be very articulate and so on. And now apparently we see he was much smarter than a lot of people thought he was. Could you comment upon that? Thinking of Carol's comment about those who operate uh, sort of in a big fog, but nonetheless know where they're going. Do you want to go first? Well, well, it, it sounds a little sinister the way you put it. <laughs> but a good leader may want to retreat so others may play their roles. It may, they may play roles the good leader supports, right? The good leader selected them, but not, nonetheless. That happens frequently in the presidency, that... The, the president is behind it all. I'm very fresh on Lyndon Johnson because of this Great Society book. 
and he is a president who does not hide his leadership very well. <laughs> so I, I first became interested in government in, when Kennedy ran for president. And, and to an 11-year-old, Eisenhower seemed a doddering person who had, was no longer a strong leader. But you know, 75 years ago this June of 2019, he led the, the largest military operation in the history of the world. Let's not forget that at D-Day. Um, and I think historians love him because he said, beware of the military-industrial complex. That is the most image or reputationally enhancing uh, factor about, about Eisenhower. Um, Lincoln said at one point, disingenuously, I think, I do not claim to have controlled events. Events have plainly controlled me. He said that as a way of garnering uh, support for emancipation as a policy that was sort of an add-on to the original rationale for, the, for prosecuting the Civil War, simply to restore the Union. So smart leaders run a little bit behind their own advanced policies, which I think Lincoln did. As we said uh, earlier that James Buchanan has been listed as the worst president in history uh, in almost everybody's survey for a long time. And Robert Strauss, the gentleman sitting over here, I want to get a mic over here so that we can ask him right. how offended he is uh, <laughs> by uh, the fact that James Buchanan always comes in last. Uh, Robert Strauss came up to this uh, event from New Jersey today. Go ahead. Uh, offended, no. I mean... Uh you know, everybody has to give an elevator pitch. I covered television for a while as a journalist. And, and uh, so I went to my agent and I said, you know, and given the time, he said, I said, uh, half of America thinks Barack Obama is the worst president. And half of them think George Bush is the worst president. But neither of them started the Civil War. So, so that's sort of uh, how I pursued it. But, uh, but, I, but there, it, it, it seemed at every turn, you know, like every fork in the road, he took the wrong one. You know, amazing proclivity of making bad decisions. But what, what he was also was the most experienced guy to run for president. He had been in the Pennsylvania State Legislature. He had been a member of Congress of both houses. He had been ambassador to Russia, ambassador to England, secretary of state. You know, he'd sort of run a few times before. Like, how could you get a guy that didn't, you know, should have qualified for everything? Yeah, it was a disaster. Thanks for coming tonight, and we have time for at least one more question. Uh, this gentleman over here on the aisle, we'll get the mic to you. Yes, sir. Great evening. I was very surprised JFK was in the top ten. Uh, growing up in the 60s, he inspired me. He inspired a lot of young people who go into public service. However, he was president for a 1,000 days. What did he accomplish to make him one of the greatest presidents? But by the way, you should know that the American Political Science Survey that just came out has him 16. So um, who knows where this is all going to go? I mean, the impact of John Kennedy was generational. Um, he was the, a master of television, which Eisenhower had not been, Truman had not been. Like FDR, like Lincoln, like Trump. He was the master of a new form of communicating directly with the people. He inspired people into public service. And uh, I, the two elements that I think um, enhance his reputation are 
um, communications ability, the wit and the warmth and the humor, uh, self-deprecating also, which was, and of course, the tragedy of his passing. Uh, presidents who die in office, presidents who are taken from us violently, um, hold a special place in national memory, um, not only for what was accomplished, but almost for what for the might have been. I just add, he was the president of the center. JFK was not a socialist. He's liked by both parties. He's, there's a wonderful book by Ira Stoll, whom you've probably had on, uh, called JFK Conservative, looking at his econ policy. There are plenty of books that go the other way. So he fit right down the center for, for many Americans, like a, like a bowling ball. Final question to you two. Uh, you mentioned your book coming out on LBJ and the Great Society. When is that expected to be on the market? November. November. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Holzer, your next book, I mean, this is 54, I guess. No, it'll be 55, I think. 55? Ten times as many books. <laughs> this is also edited books, so it's not as, 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 I'm not as prolific as you make me out to be. So my next book is called The Presidents and the Press from the Founding Fathers to Fake News. And it explores um, all of the presidents and their evolving and contentious relationships with journalists. When did that come out? Yeah. Uh, next spring. I want to thank the, start with Peter Osnos and one of our guests here this evening, Harold Holzer, for providing us the opportunity to be here at the FDR house and to our audience for joining us and asking such good questions. Amity Slays, thank you very much. And uh, that's it. It's done. <laughs>